0: This week on Dig Me Out... There's a hundred years of music history that you need to be catching up on here. What do you have, a job and a child? Get with it. It would appear so. Tim and Jay Review, Blues
1: for the Red Sun, by Caius. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minnici, and joining me once again, my co-host... Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it is episode 210-210 of season five. And we have a requested review this week.
0: Requested, requested review. review.
1: Someone we know, Matthew Slateholm. He has uh, requested in the past, and he has requested this episode. It's Caius J. Caius.
0: It is. The and legendary.
1: Their, the legendary Caius and their album, Blues for the Red Sun. He actually, he left it open. He said, I want you to re- do a Caius album, but you go ahead and pick it. So I chose this one. I think this is an interesting album to discuss of theirs. I know when we were uh, talking last week, we were talking about, uh, you were talking about the final album, uh, it In the Circus Leaves Town, mm-hmm. as one that you had recently revisited. That's their last album of their four or, or in the Circus Leaves Town. Yeah, that's their fourth album. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which came out in 95. This is a, from a couple of years earlier. Were you as familiar with Blues for the Red Sun as uh, Circus Leaves Town?
0: I wasn't. I mean, this is, again, let's change our frame of reference here from what we're used to. So uh, I you discover a band in the 90s and you may like something by them, but that doesn't mean. You're gonna spend your music budget on their entire back catalog, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't really have any friends that liked them, so I had no way to, you know, get a cassette version or hear it or anything. So, despite the fact that, you know, there was a lot I liked about the last record, it just it wasn't possible to go back and uh, I didn't love it enough. Let's let's say to to not buy any other mu- music for. Two months, and instead buy their entire back catalog. So, right, uh, most of the stuff I didn't really hear until uh, became available on like streaming services and stuff. You know, the well, internet.
1: That's interesting because I, in terms of record stores, let's detour just for a sec. Were you dealing with like chain record stores and like record exchanges where they had used CDs when you were buying stuff back then?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and okay. if I you'd stumble across like a used, you know, one of their CDs used for cheap, that's usually how I would get a back catalog. But a lot of bands like this who had really passionate fans and didn't sell a ton of records it were very rare that you would find. They were less likely you would find them in used bins, right? It'd be like used bins were full of like primarily stuff that was really popular that people bought and then didn't feel that they needed to keep or took an experiment on and didn't end up liking it. So I want to say like you'd probably find a lot of their last record in used bins, but not the early stuff because it was just right. the people that bought it wanted to keep it. Well, the know, reason they,
1: why I, I asked that was because I think people who grew up with sort of the local record store mm-hmm. probably established in some cases more of a relationship with the people who work there sort of your high yeah. fidelity sort of relationship where sure. they might go, Hey, um, I just checked out this Caius band and do you have any more records by them? Or, and they'd be like, no, but I can order them for you. Or yeah. yeah, this band's cool. Like, I think that you and I were probably in the same boat as far as that went, because I was going to, you know, the chain record store until Bowling Green. And then yeah. we go to Madhead or a finders, but I never really asked, I was a little intimidated to go up and be like, "So I don't know anything about this band." You guys want to, yeah. you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and even the the few independent record stores we had, they wouldn't have been any help with this music. Like, right. they would have told me like what Steely Dan record to buy, but exactly, they wouldn't have been any help with uh, Caius and uh, you know, sort of the small town area of Cleveland that I grew up in. So, right, it wasn't until college where college and then. The, proliferation of used CD um, stuff really took off which it took a little while for that I feel like right it was I remember when CDs got big it was very much like mall you know big chain like stores that were selling CDs and it took like a year or two for the whole like resale and then all the independent there seemed to be like a lot of independent uh, record stores that popped up to resell CDs and resell DVDs and Stuff And that's when it kind of uh, became easier to get your hands on this on back catalogs and and stuff you just wanted to sample and experiment with. Right. And yeah, couldn't afford to spend to take a chance on fifteen (laughs) dollars having never heard the band. uh,
1: Yeah, I feel like the mid 90s to the to the late 90s were like the heyday of the used record store. Yeah. The record exchanges were the primarily one primary one here in Ohio. I don't know how big of a chain they were if they went national or what, but there was one in Bowling Green or no one near Bowling Green, I think in Toledo. And then there was one in Cleveland or a couple in Cleveland. There was, then we moved down to Columbus. There was a couple here for yeah. a couple of years and then they all just disappeared. Uh, and the all the independents
0: up. gave up a lot of space to uh, use stuff too, like right. bigger. I think they got rid of all their vinyl <laughs> basically in, yeah use that shelf space for new CDs,
1: Or did the vinyl be shoved into like one little corner row in the back?
0: And now they've gone the opposite. They've gotten rid of all the UCDs probably and and stocked up on vinyl.
1: Right. Well, we've detoured for a minute. We should actually get back on on track here with the album uh, Blues for the Red Sun by Caius, Uh, which for those of you who don't know, we're going to do some history of the band here, and we're going to talk about how this band – is connected to some other bands that you might have heard of.
0: History of the band
1: So Caius formed in Palm Desert, California in 1987. Vocalist John Garcia, drummer Brant Bjork, whose solo album we reviewed a couple seasons ago, and bassist Chris Cockrell were joined by a young guitar player by the name of Josh Home. I always get confused. I'm not confused, but I always wonder if I'm pronouncing his name right. If you know, it's I, home or homie.
0: I don't know. I never in all the years I've been a fan of his. I'm trying to think of like when somebody said it, that would know. Right. For whatever reason, I don't make note of it. So I just always say home.
1: Like even during that Sonic Highways when they were out in Palm Desert. I was waiting for Dave Grohl to say his last name and I don't right. think he ever said it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like I barely ever hear said. It's always Josh from Queens or something, you know people say and then the couple times I've probably heard it for whatever reason I just didn't take note of it. So I can't say for sure.
1: So the original lineup from 1987 to 89 also included Nick Oliveri on guitar. That's important to remember. And they were called Kotzenjammer. They changed their name in 1989 to Sons of Caius and Oliveri left the band and they released one EP under Sons of Caius. Uh, At that point, they changed the name to Just Caius and released their first album in 1991 as Caius. Now, the name Caius comes from (laughs) Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Brett bjork founded in the first edition of a role-playing game book called the fiend folio it's the name of an undead monster mm. so nick oliveri uh, rejoined the band uh from 91 to 92 as on the base as a bass player he plays on the record that we're reviewing which is blues for the red sun he then was fired and replaced by scott reader just before the release of this album the lineup from 92 to 94 featured garcia home reader and bjork and then 94 brant bjork left the band and he was replaced on drums by alfredo hernandez who appears on the last record we mentioned earlier in the circus Leaves town they also released an album in 94 called welcome to sky Valley. uh they released one last split EP in 1980, 1997 as Caius with another band called Queens of the Stone Age, which, of course, was Josh Holmes' other band where he was actually the lead singer. Everybody went on to other bands that was in this band. Uh, I mentioned Brent Bjork has a solo career. Uh, they've played in bands such as Mondo Generator, Eagles of Death Metal, Them Crooked Vultures, The Dwarves, and other bands that probably people aren't familiar with a note about this band or about this uh this album a number of the songs on the album are credited with lyrics to john garcia but do actually not have any lyrics or vocals josh home was actually listed as one of the primary lyricists and actually i I mean i should say everybody wrote lyrics for the band Mm -hmm. so uh there was A rumor that John Garcia actually didn't write any lyrics, which I don't think that that's true necessarily, but that the only thing he wrote was the four-second yeah at the end of the album. Okay. (laughs) But I think that's an exaggeration. Yeah. Josh Holm for this album played into bass amplifiers Mm. to get the distortion. And the song Green Machine, uh, it's not a guitar solo, it's a bass solo. Hmm. So there you go. That's some uh, some notes on this record. Of course, like Matthew, uh, if you'd like to suggest an album for us to review, please visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Jay, we got some Facebook feedback, and then we also got some digmeoutpodcast.com feedback that I want to bring up. Oh. Yeah. Okay. People commenting in our comment section on digmeoutpodcast.com. So on Facebook, Scott Russell Holgram says, All four albums of Caius are my favorite of theirs while I'm listening to it. This one included. I don't know what that means. I'm so confused (laughs) by where where your statement is there, Scott. You're saying you like all four (laughs) albums equally? I guess so. Or
0: this one is his favorite.
1: I'm not sure. Uh, Eric J. Peterson says, I recall seeing these guys on Headbangers Ball and picking up the album. I really liked the single Green Machine and did pick up other Caius releases. As I'm sure you're going to talk about, Caius was one of those bands that reached a few people but influenced a whole scene and sound. They were doing what so many other bands in the 90s did, taking elements of those bands like Thin White Rope and The Obsessed and making a roadmap for the bands that would follow. Now, I've heard of The Obsessed, but I have not heard of Thin White Rope, so that would be something I have to. Uh,
0: I haven't to. either. I've heard of The Obsessed, but I have not heard of Thin White Rope. Hmm.
1: And then on our digmeoutpodcast.com page, Scott Witt says, Love this album. Fuzzed out awesomeness. This was a great album for us metalheads in the sea of flannel. Odd listening to this and hear how Josh has changed so much, but John still sounds the same. Always thought Desert Rock was a dumb name. Um, and then Bong, uh, excuse me, Big Fact Bong Rips says, <laughs>
0: <laughs> "Okay, It
1: says all time classic stoner metal album." Subtle here name. Album. Yep. Welcome to Sky Valley. Maybe a notch above, notch above, but Green Machine, Freedom Run, and fucking 50 year trip and apothecaries. Apothecaries waits. Get out of here if that isn't some of the best shit I've ever heard. Caius was great and Queens of the Stone Age are pretty awesome, but I still prefer Josh's riffs in Caius. That's something that we can debate. And then last but not least, Nick Oliveri's Meth Dealer says. Yes, that's mm. his name. Nick Oliveri's Matthew. He says, oh, yeah, das the da shit right there. None of those are spelled correctly. <laughs> so that's it. That's our comments on this record. So let's get into the record, Jay. Let's talk about Blues for the Red Sun mm. by Caius. As I mentioned, this is the lineup of Garcia, Bjork, Oliveri, and Home. Uh, I guess you'd say this is like the, the classic lineup for Caius. Uh, of course, Oliveri, Nick Oliveri would join Josh Ohm in Queens of the Stone Age for the first, I think, two records he plays on, Rated R and Songs for the Deaf, and he's out after that, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Uh, yeah. He's there's sort of the a, Matt
1: Sharp of Queens of the Stone Age.
0: There's some EPs and stuff before that, though,
1: for Rated X. You're he's right. Like self-titled
0: yeah he was uh what is that like the first half of the band would you say
1: yeah because they've they changed around in terms of like who was playing i mean queens mm-hmm. has changed around in terms of who's played drums and you know dave Grohl's played on some stuff and I certainly
0: different- had a he had a definite presence in the band like he got his own songs and he sang some and it wasn't like he was just playing bass like he had a
1: oh yeah he was there like or, I said, he's he's the Matt Sharp of Queens of the Stone yeah. Age. Yeah, let's talk about uh, the record. Uh, what we liked, what we didn't like, what worked, what didn't work. However, we want to phrase it. Let's go through the record. Tell me, Jay, going back to this record, um, mm-hmm. what uh, what stood out for you that worked and uh, that you enjoyed this time around?
0: Well, one of, one of the things I thought about going into this, and I think it was the album title that sparked the the connection for me. It was. Um, you know, when Black Sabbath went into their last record, the one of the things that uh, who produced that <laughs> drawing a blank right now, Rick Rubin? Rick Rubin, Rick Rubin wanted them to focus on was being a blues band. So instead of them going in and trying to, like, be the gods of metal and try to make the heaviest metal record ever, um, you know, I think one of his production uh, notes and areas of focus was to get them to go back to how they started, which was them interpreting the blues Mm -hmm. and and I think going into this record I found that interesting because I think you know, obviously Black Sabbath is a huge part of Caius and in a lot of ways I think that at least with this first record I didn't notice it as much on the last record but on this record you kind of can hear that like they are in some ways interpreting blues in a whole but even in a different, you know, uh, maybe more extreme way that even Sabbath did, or at least in mm-hmm. a different way than they did. So that was one, just kind of like, where did they come up with this, you know, kind of thing? As you're listening to the record, where did they come up with this sound? And that was one of the things that stood out to me a little bit. Is they, at the very least, if they weren't listening to blues, which I don't know that they were, they were at the very least understanding that aspect of Sabbath when they were inspired by a band like that. That that's where, that's where it was coming from. It wasn't just an intent to be the heaviest, most evil band ever. So that was one thing that was interesting to kind of listen through and hear. And then obviously the sound of the band. I mean, if that's what they're known for. Um, Yes, there's some amazing riffs and playing and performances on here. But more than anything, the sound that they invented was what set them apart and got people to pay attention. And uh, I was really impressed that it holds up. I was expecting to kind of go back to a record this old and um, the fact that, you know, it is very much based on a, that big, huge fuzz, you know, sound and very distinct low end that I thought maybe it would sound a little thin, you know, in contrast to the fact that we've kind of gotten used to that at this point. There's so many bands that have done that, but uh, I felt like it really held up really good. I thought the drums sounded fantastic. I don't remember the drums sounding this good. Like when I think of them, I don't think of them as much about that. I think of just the big wall of fuzz and uh, you know, it, 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 it holds up sonically um, for sure. Does it hold up as from a creative standpoint now? Um, That's something I struggled with a little bit, but we can kind of go down that road uh, after we hear what you liked.
1: Well, it was interesting going back a couple years ago. I, I went through, I mean, they only have a four album catalog, so I, but I went through and I spent some time with all the records and I definitely feel like the progression from wretch to this in terms of sonically and songwriting is pretty huge and i feel like this and welcome to sky valley is where they sort of hit their peak in terms of the sound of the band and sort of hitting their stride and then they i feel like in the circus leaf town ends on a on a good note but it's not quite as it's not up to the middle two releases and going back now after having been away from it for a couple of years and like you said there's a lot of bands that do this like heavy fuzz it's nice to hear how even now how fresh this sounds, and I think I was really I, I think amazed at like how simple a lot of these songs are, yeah. but they're played with so much energy and they're so well produced that this mm-hmm. could sound muddy and mucky and yeah. just not hold up. Um, but Chris uh, Goss, I think is his name, is the producer of the record. And he is in the band called masters of reality that I'm not really that all that familiar with. I've only heard a couple tunes by them from checking them out in various places, but he definitely helped shape the sound with this band on this record and, and moving forward. Yeah. Um, and it really, really comes across as being, if you can kind of put yourself back in that mindset, I mean, there was nobody doing this sound this heavy back then. Right. Um, you know that
0: corrosion and conformity would kinda, of, but they had like I don't know, it was more metallic, it was more metalish. Yeah. And this this is definitely another rung, I guess down from that. There's a there's a, it's like more earthy or something. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but
1: Well, you're you're right about the metallic aspect of it because it's like I, I don't know how to put it into words, but you know what when you hear it. There's just something about the the, the tone. It's just so um the low it has such a rounded low end yeah that it just envelops everything so that there's no crunch or there's it's just this thump that you're hearing yeah it doesn't have that
0: like that high-end aspect it's all no chest
1: When I listened to these records years ago, I was attracted to the more up tempo stuff on mm-hmm. the record, like Green Machine and Alan's Ranch, and and those types of songs, and the stuff from the other records. But I think going back, I got I, I really appreciated some of the more um, not necessarily slower, but the, the thing the songs that take a little bit more time to develop, and the stuff that's a bit more I hate these word groove groovy, but the stuff that's not so you know, this, th- these were guys that started out in punk bands. Um, if you mm-hmm. if, uh, read some of the early, really early history on them, and the punk music didn't play well out in the desert, just didn't sound good. So they started slowing down and fattening up the tones because it yeah. played better when they were playing outside in the desert. Yeah. Um, you can still hear some of that punk influence in those in the tempos on some of the up-tempo stuff, mm-hmm. and even more so on the first record on Wretch. Uh, but they're still there on some of the songs. But you can really hear them finding them, finding that, quote unquote, desert rock groove uh, on the songs on this record. That And that to me was like, you know, that was setting the blueprint for the next 20 years.
0: Yeah. So I guess to tie that back to my opening monologue, I guess that's what they like as Zeppelin translated blues into what they did. They translated punk into what, you know into something that worked for them and you can hear it in some of the temples. You can also hear it in some of the, the vocal phrasings used, especially in verses like just the rhyming patterns and things. They sound like slowed down punk songs, Mm -hmm. Um, even from a vocal standpoint. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting in terms of what they were, you know, taking their inspiration from, but then completely routing it through a whole new, I don't know, process and aesthetic. Um, And it was really interesting in the, I'm assuming you saw the, sonic highways episode with the yeah they talk about them quite a bit and it it makes a little sense like when you're playing outside with no walls the, the, the bass tones don't uh there's nothing to sort of they just carry out and you don't hear them and all you hear is the high end. So if you're playing punk rock it just sounds like you know tinny and kind of awful you need a room to capture that low end and bounce you know kind of reflect it back so people can hear it and fully you know hear the full spectrum so it makes total sense that in that environment you know they just completely rethought you know what they should be doing to make it sound good in that in that setting which invented this sound i mean that's why they use bass amps right to get those to get your your tone down to that frequency that so that it still had power when you're standing in the middle of a desert you have to use different speakers and a whole different setup which is really interesting you know it wasn't just you know it didn't come out of them just trying to be goofy you know it actually had a purpose it was designed that way for a reason which is Mm -hmm. is pretty cool
1: i think one of the things that i I found interesting in listening to songs like freedom run and some of the more mid-tempo uh tracks is the callbacks to the stuff that was heavy but wasn't zeppelin um you know i heard stuff like obviously here you hear things like cream and Mountain and those kind mm. of bands, and then yeah. you know bands like Hawkwind get mentioned for the more like spacey elements. And yeah. That's a band. That's a band that I have always intended to go listen to mm-hmm. uh, more of, but I've just never uh, spent the time with them, and I really should. As well as Blue Cheer is another band that gets mentioned a lot. Yeah. Um, that I've just I've been lazy <laughs> about it. I apologize. As someone who's come on, Sam. I know.
0: There's a hundred years of music history that you need to be catching up on here. What do you have a job and a child get with it?
1: It would appear so, but uh no, it was cool to hear in those sort of more mid tempo, less punk rock callbacks to sort of the beginning of heavier psychedelic music. That was, they even predated, you know, Sabbath in terms of it's being heavy. Cause Sabbath is sort of like the go-to everybody who's heavy and, got a groove oh you know they obviously they're related to sabbath you know when you talk about like cream and deep purple and you know zeppelin those sorts of bands yeah they don't necessarily get mentioned in the same way because they're not quite as heavy as zeppelin was or excuse me as as sabbath was Mm -hmm. um but I, i i heard some of those in those riffs and you can hear it when later in josh holmes playing um i mean my god he played with john paul jones in yeah crooked vultures i mean there's lots of throwbacks to that really early you know late 60s early the real early beginnings of psychedelic hard rock
0: The psychedelic part of the band is one that I had forgotten about. So when I revisited it, you know, that was a nice thing to remember that 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 was part of them. As opposed to somebody like Fu Manchu, which was more fun, uh, more straightforward, even though they were using some similar ideas in terms of, you know, big fuzz guitar tone and that, that kind of thing. Yeah, this band was, uh, what was I saying? Just lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, anyway, you, you brought up Josh Home Yeah. I really felt that the song he sings on was really brought the album back together for me. I feel like the middle of the record starts to meander a little bit. Um, there's certainly some good performances and good moments in every one of those songs in the middle, but it gets a little instrumental heavy and it just gets a lo- you know you start to like lo- lose a little bit of your passion or interest in it. And then when his song comes in, I felt like it was a complete refresh like I perked back up and it gave the record a, a shot that it needed um, just from this even if from the standpoint the voice is different the approach to the vocal is different like he is very his vocals is very clean whereas mm-hmm. Garcia tries to sing with a lot more rasp on this record you know he's really pushing his voice to, to have some fuzz you know as well and uh, the fact that the uh, writhe the josh Homme song he uh starts the vocal right away is nice As opposed to all the other songs on the record, where you have a long intro or no vocal, um, sometimes that you go like three quarters through the song before the vocal starts, and it also just gives you a sense of you can hear the origins of Queens of the Stone Age in it. Um, there's a piano, what sounds like maybe a piano in the second verse mm-hmm. in that song. I, I'm not sure 100 percent what that is, but it's kind of like that single note, little you know, pluck that comes in the second time they go through the verse, I'm like, oh, that's totally, like he turned that into an entire band, like that whole idea of, you know what I mean? Mixing those instruments in and that kind of technique of when to bring that part in. And so I just, I felt that that song was uh, historically interesting, but also on the record, it seemed to me, uh, it kind of saved the the end of the record for me.
1: Now, you mentioned Fu Manchu, and it's interesting because in terms of, you know, sort of the sonic palette. They're in the same ballpark. Mm-hmm. And I had always kind of thought of his Fu Manchu as following. But when I did my research, Fu Manchu actually put out their first single in 1990, which mm-hmm. is a year before the first Caius album comes out. Yeah. And they were in a different part of California. Um, yep. So they were really on parallel tracks, sort of developing mm-hmm. similar. Obviously, I think what... You mentioned uh with regards to Fu Manchu being more fun, like they wrote very condensed, less psychedelic songs. Right. I mean they they do take some trips into the psychedelic department from time to time, but not in the same way that No Caius does.
0: It's a bit more of a party kind of vibe, you know. Right. Uh, As opposed to like trippy shrooms kind of thing that kaius can sometimes get into with a lot of like delay effects and just weird sounds and stuff like that
1: i think that what was so interesting was that these were some pretty heavy bands and i don't think of california as producing a whole lot of heavy music mm-hmm. and it's odd that this sound this heaviness which are, you know you could say originates in the uk with you yeah. with sabbath really found its second wind, um, or third wind, I guess. I don't know if you I I, I think of this as sort of the the next iteration of that heavy bass driven guitar riff stuff with fumenchu and and Caius. It doesn't seem like it would come out of there. It seems like it would be like a something would come out of the Midwest from a more of a working class, you know, dreary sort of or even like a Seattle where it would be like more <laughs> dreary and
0: well yeah well that's the thing it's not uh the the so we did uh we've done corrosion conformity i think they're a Mm. california band right and smile had some fuzziness kind of thing to them that would be in this ballpark and they were a california band so i feel like the um the difference is that it's not really dreary it might be political or psychedelic or like trippy but it's not like Seattle where it's self-loathing and you know what I mean? Like introspective, depressing kind of stuff. So in that way, it like, it feels authentic. I think it is authentic to sort of the California culture, but you know, you still got kids that are bored, you know, especially these guys and some you know, they're in remote areas, even though it's California, it's still, you know, they're out in the desert with nothing to do and, Right. You know. Like parents aren't around and whatever and just making shit up to, to entertain themselves and you know, that can happen just about anywhere. It's just not like Just to set from the Los record Angeles.
1: straight, uh, corrosion of conformity is from North Carolina. Oh,
0: okay. Why do I think they are from California?
1: I don't know. Hmm. I do not know. But well, we're off on Ram Talkus. The only uh, other band that I thought of was in the same sort of ballpark is Monster Magnet, and they're from the other side of the country. Yeah. They're Jersey
0: man, uh, and I thought um, "Thong Song" mm-hmm. kind of got into a Monster Magnet area for me. Like the vocal is out by itself, yeah, and I feel it's like the first two local, minutes of the song, yeah, kind of a broken riff, and it just reminded me of what Monster Magnet would have done, at, you know, around this time. Yeah, uh, I didn't think it was particularly good for Caius. I guess the, the to get to to get into the negatives. Um, one was I don't think Jangus Garcia always brings a lot to the songs. There's some songs where you know his contribution is it works and it and it elevates the song. And there's other ones where I kind of don't even need him. You know, it's yeah. like he's not really adding anything. And his vocal sometimes sounds very strained and just not in a good way. Like. trying to sound gruff and and big to keep up with the heaviness of the music and he just doesn't have the lungs to do it that's why it was so interesting to hear josh holmes approach to vocals with this band where he's just he's just him like talk you know kind of a cool delivery laid back he's not trying to like out heavy the guitars with his voice you know he just basically does what he does in screens of the stone age he had not quite as developed yet but it's like a softer voice and i found that contrast way more interesting as opposed to the you know trying to shout over or compete with the heaviness of the music so that was one thing that stood out and then even i mean to be honest that kind of stood out to me even you know when i discovered this band i i didn't i don't dislike the vocal i just felt like it was the you know weaker part of the overall chemistry or equation however you want to phrase it i guess the other downside was or negative would just be, you know, the, you're conf- I was confronted with the legacy of this band so much listening to the record, it was difficult to separate. So all the bands that they influenced and have gone on to take this idea into all kinds of different crazy places and Queens of the Stone Age themselves, you know, as you're listening to it, it's hard not to, I don't know, the expectations that those bands and that music sets, it's hard not, it's hard not to um, not bring that into the listen. So there's times here where, you know, I wish they would maybe do something more dramatic, like what Baroness would do. And, you know, they don't, that's not really what they're about. Or I wish they were bringing a weird instrument like Queens of the Stone Age would, but that's not what they're about, you know, so.
1: No, this is definitely the rudimentary.
0: Yeah. So I was kind of distracted, I guess, by the legacy that they created, which made it maybe not as enjoyable as I wish it could have been. I'll on the listen.
1: John Garcia front, I, I agree with you. I think that he's the weakest aspect of the band. Not to say that he doesn't do a good job on a number of the songs, but there's just, like you said, he's trying to keep up with the enormity of the size of the riffs, and mm-hmm. it sometimes it just does not work. And that's, I think that's why there's so much instrumental music, because yeah. you kind, it's almost irrelevant in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm and i wonder if you know him getting credited with vocals i wonder if there were vocals for some of those songs and then they just pulled him out cuz they were like you know it's not working but they still still gave him credit for it yeah maybe
0: maybe he wrote and recorded stuff and they just mixed him out i could see that i mean yeah there's so you know with with the with what he was doing vocally there's only so much you can do that makes sense like there's yeah not a whole lot of room there um like you said, I think Josh Holm figured out a way, and he uses different singers, right? I mean, Queens of the Stone Age is known for other voices. Oh yeah, whether it be Nicola Varry or Mark uh, Lanigan. Mark Aaron Lanigan. So, you know, he's he's used a variety of voices to keep it interesting. Because I think even he's, you know, he's probably not has grown into be a more confident singer than he was when he started, but just.
1: But he sings high, like I mean, if you listen yeah. to a lot of the 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 yep. singles, especially. He the figured time, out very, that very,
0: he, very, clean, just kind of like sticks clean out and high. Yeah. It's on its own plane, which is, I think what you got to do, or, you know, that's one of the ways to go about it. And then you can, I mean, he can be as melodic as he wants to be, right? Because his voice is just sitting out on its own. He can, he can create whatever melodies he wants with it. Uh, whereas I think with the approach that Garcia takes, it's so, uh, it's so emulating and so trying to. Be, uh, close to the music that he also finds himself just following the chords of the music, which, you know, do I really need that? <laughs> you know what I mean? If I'm interested in another melody on top of this, do I need a, a voice doing the same thing that the guitars are doing, but the guitars are doing way more awesome? Right. So, I mean, it's 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 not the kind of thing where it's a failure because of it. It's just, again, when you hear what others did with this idea, since them, you Can't help but kind of wish some of that was here. It's not.
1: So let's talk about our overall reading then. Uh, Worthy album, better EP, or decent single, J. I'm going to start with you.
0: Oh, I think it's a worthy album. I mean, there's, you know, of the 14, probably eight to nine that, you know, I think are really good. And the ones that aren't, there's at least enough performance wise, um, awesome drum fills, and really cool. Guitar riffs and just awesome grooves and sounds that you know they're still worthy. They just don't all hold your absolute hundred percent interest through them. But I think it's a worthy record.
1: I'll agree with you, uh, I, I, and also on the eight or nine, I think this make a killer eight or nine album, uh, song album. Um, and I think this was re released on vinyl a couple years ago, so I, I would like to hear the the vinyl version of uh, this record, put this on my record player so that's it for us and Lose for the Red Sun by Caius we need to thank Matthew Slateholm for allowing us to uh, revisit this record it's a very cool record You know, we talked about last year with the Melvins sort of living in an alternate universe with regards to the 90s and the sort of loud and heavy music that they were making I kind of feel like Caius was in the same boat in terms of being in their own sort of parallel you know, tract that they were a band that nobody was really listening to but people like Dave Grohl gave a shit about and that's what mattered because um, he was passing his, I think it was in the Sonic Highways which we've mentioned like three times now. But yeah. Yeah, he, and it's very He passed very, his record along.
0: Yeah, and it's very um, I mean, it is easy to put yourself you know, for a moment in that, that headspace of like never hearing something like this before and hearing it for the first time and realizing like holy shit this is this is the start of something awesome Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yep there's no doubt about for that for that alone it's a worthy record
1: absolutely so if you have an album you would like us to review please head on over to our request a review page at digmeowpodcast.com and we will do so and of course if you like what you heard please consider leaving a positive feedback for us at itunes uh, that's our review of Blues for the Red Sun by Caius. Thanks, Matthew. Once again, we appreciate it. And uh, next week, no review. We're actually going to be doing an interview. Tune in to find out who that will be with. That's our start of our monthly, end of the month interviews. We're doing it 12 in a row. Or 12 months in a row. Not 12 interviews in a row. Dear God, that'd be a lot of work. No, 12 months in a row. Part of our new schedule for 2015. So, for Jay I'm Tim we're done we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages